I promise to bring some of the resources that I mentioned last week. So I have those up here if you wanted to come and check them out afterwards. Here are the three. I think I mentioned four specifically, Desiring God, which we have here. Um, I did not bring my copy, though. I couldn't find it. So, But these were the uh, other three that I mentioned that were uh, pivotal for me in understanding uh, these doctrines of grace. So this first one, R.C. Sproul's What is Reformed Theology? You can look through, there's water and coffee and everything's highlighted and earmarked. I really uh, didn't read this book, I wrestled, wrestled with this book. So that was one I mentioned. Uh, This written by Douglas Wilson, Easy Chairs, Hard Words, which really addresses a lot of the, the questions that come up when you're thinking about these doctrines of grace. Um, and he does that as he usually does in a winsome, winsome way. And then this is, I, I think, far less well known. But I think, I think Sinclair Ferguson wrote it in 1981. So it's been around a long time. It's called The Christian Life, uh, A Doctrinal Introduction. The doctrines of grace, these five points, are not all that he talks about in this book. Um, it's an introduction to systematic theology, really. But he does talk about the doctrines of grace. He totally reorders them. He reorders and addresses them in the order that we experience them as Christians. So, again, another book that was so helpful for me. You may or may not find them as helpful as I did. But for those of you who are wondering, those were at the, the top of my recommendation list. So, as I said last week, we could triple the time that we're taking for this series, which is six classes at 45 minutes each and still just barely introduce the material. So that means we need to start at 830 sharp. We did last week and today. It means I need to move very quickly through the material. Uh, It means that I anticipate and answer questions in the lessons But I won't have time to stop and take questions. I don't expect to anyway. So email those questions to me. Don't forget the resources that I provided last week, which you'll find at the end of your outline again today. And don't forget, following this series, beginning April 8th, we'll start another Sunday school series called Grounded in the Gospel, which will be a long look at a Reformed Baptist Catechism. Okay, with that said, let me pray and we will get started with today's lesson. Father in heaven, help us today to understand the severity of our corruption. And help us, Lord, as we understand our sinfulness, not to blame. Not to blame others, not to blame our parents, not to blame you. Humble us, help us to cherish the gospel more in light of who we are. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week I summarized TULIP, the popular acrostic used for the five points of Calvinism which summarize man's helplessness and God's sovereignty in salvation. That's what the doctrines of grace are doing for us. They are really summarizing our helplessness and God's sovereignty in salvation. I also, quoting John Piper, summarized the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. And so now... I think we're ready to devote our next five classes to each of those five points, beginning this morning with total depravity. Remember, before we get started, remember what theology is for. We should not be interested in theology because we're interested in mere knowledge or chiefly interested in being right or interested in winning an argument 
or being on the inside of some sort of group or clique, all reasons that people are interested in theology. We should be interested in theology and especially these five points because we are interested in knowing God. So theology is for knowing and loving God. That's what it's for. It's not theology, period. It's not theology in and of itself. We're interested in doctrine. We're interested in theology because we're interested ultimately in knowing and loving God. Here are the headings that we will be working under this morning. There are three of them. They're numbered one, two, three in your handout. Number one, summary, a summary of total depravity. Number two, scope, the scope of total depravity. And number three, effects, the effects of total depravity. So let's get moving. Number one, a summary of total depravity. Here is again Michael Horton's summary which he gives in this book, which I highly recommend and is on your resource list, For Calvinism. It's published by Zondervan, and they do this periodically where they have books written by different authors putting forth different views. So there's a book called For Calvinism written by Michael Horton, and then the companion book was Against Calvinism written by Roger Olson. I'm not actually a fan of those kinds of book series, but I really like this book that Michael Horton wrote, and I quote from it quite a few times. So here's what his summary is of total depravity. said it last week, I'll say it again. Our bondage to sin in Adam is complete in its extensiveness, though not in its intensity. In other words, we're not as bad as we can possibly be, but... Original sin has thoroughly corrupted every aspect of our existence, including the will. And then here is John Piper's summary from his book, Five Points, which is also in your recommended resources. Total depravity. When we speak of man's depravity, we mean... Man's natural condition apart from any grace exerted by God to restrain or transform man. This is total depravity. It's your natural condition and my natural condition apart from God's grace. It is who you are if left to yourself. It is who you are if God doesn't positively influence you in some way by his grace. That's what we're looking at when we look at total depravity. So number two, let's think about the scope of total depravity. In other words, what is the extent? What is the extent of this condition? A. Total depravity affects every human. So if you were hoping this morning that you might be among the few who were not infected with this, you'd be wrong because total depravity affects every human. Total depravity refers to the fallen nature of every man, save who? Jesus. Since the fall of Adam into sin, you know the story in Genesis 2 and 3 about the fall of Adam and Eve. Though Adam was created innocent by God, he did not stay innocent for long. He used his free will to rebel against God, which affected him and all his posterity, which means all of his children and all of you are his children. We can all trace our lineage back to Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman. He used his free will to rebel against God, which affected him and all his posterity. The canons of Dort, remember that was the original publishing of these five points that we're studying, say the corrupt stock produced corrupt offspring. And that has been happening ever since. 
My wife and I are corrupted stock, and we have produced corrupted offspring. And everyone has been perpetuating that ever since the fall. Now, it is important to note here that total depravity is the result of the fall, not creation. So think about this. This condition we're talking about is not the result of creation. It is the result of the fall. So that God is understood not to be the author of sin. God did not make us sinful. He made us free. And with that freedom, we in Adam, we sin. The canons of Dort, again, are very intentional to emphasize this. This is the very first article under this chapter on man's depravity. Let me quote. Human beings were originally created in the image of God and were furnished in mind with a true and sound knowledge of the creator and things spiritual in will and heart with righteousness and in all emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole human being was holy. That's creation. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by their own free will, they deprived themselves of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, They brought upon themselves blindness, terrible darkness, futility and distortion of judgment in their minds, perversity, defiance and hardness in their hearts and wills and finally impurity in all their emotions. John Calvin said, our mortal wound comes not from nature itself but from its corruption through the fall. So this has not been a problem since the beginning. It has been a problem since the fall. And it affects every human being. Here are some verses. Psalm 143.2 Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. So listen to the all-inclusiveness. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Kings 8.46, there is no one who does not sin. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Proverbs 29 Who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin? In other words, nobody. And Ecclesiastes 7.20 There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. So we learn The total depravity affects every human being. B, still under the scope. Total depravity affects the whole person. So it affects every person and it affects the whole person of every person. This is what is meant actually by the word total. Remember, total is not referring to how bad we are, it is referring to the scope of this depravity. Depravity has affected every part of us. Our body hasn't escaped it. Our soul hasn't escaped it. Our mind hasn't escaped it. Our heart. It's commonly believed today that our heart is still good and has escaped depravity. It hasn't. Well, look at the verses. Our wills have not escaped it. Every part of who we are has been infected by this inherited sinful nature. R.C. Sproul, he preferred the term radical corruption over total depravity because the word radical means 
relating to the fundamental nature of something. In other words, the very core of who we are has been corrupted. That's what it means to say that total depravity affects the whole person. The very core of who we are has been corrupted. Although still created in the image of God, we are. Think of it this way. Though still created in the image of God, we are now marred images of God. So imagine looking into a mirror, right? But there's there's cracks on this mirror and there's marks on this mirror. And so you, the, the image, the replica is not exactly what it should be. This is part of, think of 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is part of what God is doing in the sanctifying of a Christian. He is, do you remember, restoring his image in the Christian. So we're marred images of God. The very core of who we are has been corrupted. R.C. also coined the term, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. There's a very big difference there. So it's not that you see a child grow up and they get old enough to where now they're in willful rebellion and you say, oh, I guess they are sinners now because they are sinning. No, it was inevitable. It was only a matter of time that they would sin because They are sinners. That is their very nature. It's yours and mine. Here are some verses. Proverbs 4.23 teaches us that the heart is the wellspring of life. It's the core. Biblically speaking, the heart is the wellspring of life. And then Jeremiah 17.9 says about that wellspring, it is deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You'll never hear that verse quoted in a movie today. We hear things like, trust your heart. And that is the actual, that is the exact opposite of Jeremiah 17 9. Because Jeremiah 17 9 says, your heart lies. It's deceptive. It's messed up. It's sick. So sick it's beyond cure. You can't understand it. But we say things like trust your heart. Follow your heart. Or we say about somebody who does something really bad, we might say, but you know, they have a good heart. Or, well, at least her heart was in the right. No. That's not, that's not what Scripture is teaching us. Here's a couple more verses. Mark 7, 21. We want to know where sin comes from. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder. Verse 23. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Ecclesiastes 9.3. We'll be studying this book soon as a church. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil. And there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. So again, total does not mean utter. This doctrine is not teaching that every man is as bad as he could possibly be. All men and women are restrained. John Piper mentioned that in his summary of total depravity. We're all restrained by God's grace, His common grace. The total in total depravity, as Michael Horton says, refers to its extensiveness, not its intensiveness. Number three. The effects of total depravity. 
Okay, so our very nature has been corrupted by the fall. In other words, the core of who we are is sinful. We've learned that. We are bad before we do anything bad. We do bad things because we are bad things. That's why it can be said, as David did in Psalm 51.5, I was conceived in sin. Now, what are the effects? What are the results of that condition? Well, that's our natural condition. Now, what are the results of that? This is like you've been diagnosed with something and you go to see the doctor and you ask the question, how bad is it? Give it to me. That's what these are. Give it to me straight. I'm ready. Just how, what are we talking about here? Just how bad is it? What can I expect? A. Total depravity affects the whole person. We've established that. So that everything man does is sin. This is some radical teaching here. So that everything man does is sin. Apart from grace, that is. Remember, that's what we're talking about. Our condition apart from God's grace. Total depravity affects the whole person so that everything man does is sin. Let me read three verses. Read them with me. Romans 14, 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. Let me ask you a question. Does an unbeliever have faith? So let's read that verse again. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's a big statement. It's not saying whatever wicked things, good things, there's no narrowing There's no further qualification. Whatever, anything you do, anything you do that is not proceeding from a heart of faith is sin. Or Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, pause, does an unbeliever have faith? No. Without faith, It is what? Impossible to please who's him? God. Without faith, if I don't have faith, it is not possible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In Romans 7, 18. This is now Paul, a Christian, talking. Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So, Paul says, I know. He's a Christian. So this is different than Romans 14 and Hebrews 11. This is a Christian saying, I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then he makes this qualification that is in my flesh. I think what Paul means there is. I'm a Christian. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. But I have a new nature within me. But. Apart from that, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from God's grace, nothing good is in me. Total depravity affects the whole person so that everything man does is sin. So let's address a question here. Really? That's the question. (laughs) Really? That seems like an exaggeration. 
everything a sinner does is sinful. So you're trying to tell me that when Oprah... Hey, whatever you think about Oprah, or take somebody else maybe that's not a believer, but does a lot of good things. And I'd use that word. Does a lot of good things. Are you are we saying that when Oprah uses millions of her dollars to build an orphanage in Africa that she is sinning? Now, the answer is, according to what we're saying, what? Yes. So let's think about that. First Samuel 16, 7, we've got to remember something. God examines the motives. God looks at the hearts. We've got the, what we see, right? Someone doing something good. But God, remember that, He always looks Deeper. He knows the motives. He knows the reasons. He knows the condition of the heart. And that's what God is always examining. Man is able to do things that seem good to us. And, and I would use the word good. And I don't think we need to get all bent out of shape about that. All right, we can use the word good. I could go around saying that, you know, these philanthropic efforts are wickedness or evil. I'm happy for a lot of them. I'm thankful for a lot of them. I'm glad for a lot of them. Man is able to do things that seem good to us. But. These deeds. The orphanage. Whatever it is. These deeds are still. Offensive to God. If they are not done trusting him. Loving him crediting Him, worshiping Him. So on a horizontal plane, good. On a vertical plane, sin. Maybe it's helpful to think of it that way. On a horizontal plane, good, good, that's good, that's good. Thankful, that's good, that's good. On a vertical plane, sin. Not done to glorify God. Not giving God the credit. Not in obedience to God, not out of love for God. God is offended when a person receives all praise for doing things that God has enabled them to do. That's offensive. When God gets no praise and a person absorbs all that praise And God gets zero praise, though he is the one that has completely enabled everything good that they have done. Everything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Even great philanthropic endeavors are sinful if not done with pure motives and a desire to glorify God. John Calvin coined the term civil virtue. That's what he called it, civil virtue. But it is, apart from regenerative grace, always, Jonathan Edwards said, motivated by enlightened self-interest. In other words, enlightened self-interest. In other words, we do good things because it serves our own interests in some way. It makes us feel good about ourselves. It keeps us from getting a ticket. There's all kinds of reasons that we might do good things other than I love God. I love God and I love others. I want God's name to be praised. I want God to be glorified. And any reasons apart from those, in other words, outside of faith. The Bible calls it sin. It is not pleasing to God. So, yes, everything sinful man does is sin. We talk about the effects of this depravity. B. Total depravity affects the whole person so that 
All of these begin with that phrase. We're building on that. Total depravity affects the whole person so that man is unable to do anything truly good. Uh Uh-oh. Including faith and repentance. A lot of people who would agree with A would not agree with B. Okay, everything sinful man does is sinful. I get that. Man is unable, apart from faith, to do anything good. But he can still, apart from God, obviously, faith and repentance. But that's not true. When it comes to doing good things, faith in Christ is the best thing you could do. Repentance, turning from your sin and to God, is the greatest good. That is the best thing that anyone could ever do. And so if you are unable to do good things in your natural condition, that absolutely, and we'll show you the scripture, includes placing your faith in Christ. Total depravity affects the whole person so that Man is unable to do anything truly good, including faith and repentance apart from grace, that is. This means man cannot save himself. This means man cannot save himself. Man cannot grab the life ring. That was one of the ways I used to encourage people to turn to Jesus. You don't know it, but you're drowning right now. You're drowning in your sin. And God has thrown you a life ring. You need to grab it. You're not drowning. You've drowned. That's the difference. Does Scripture teach that in our natural condition we're drowning? Or does it teach that we have drowned? Okay, this this is known as the doctrine of moral inability. Listen to Charles Spurgeon as he winsomely expresses it. Did I include this in your outline? It's It's a long quote, but I think it's helpful. He's... He's talking about what theologians call moral inability, which is you cannot save yourself. Not you. That doesn't mean you can't die on the cross for your sin. Everybody agrees with that. You can't place your faith in Christ without help from God. So he says now says one, I believe man can be saved if they will. My dear sir, that is not in question at all. The question is, are men ever found naturally willing to submit to the humbling terms of the gospel of Christ? We declare upon scriptural authority that the human will is so desperately set on mischief, so depraved and so inclined to everything that is evil and so disinclined to everything that is good that without the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will ever be constrained towards Christ. You reply that men sometimes are willing without the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just pause. That is what those in the 1600s that were opposed to the orthodox doctrine of the day would say. And that is what these five points were written against. That some then and some in the 1800s and then some today would say that men are sometimes willing without the help of the Holy Spirit. Here was his answer. I answer, did you ever meet with any person who was? Scores and hundreds, nay, thousands of Christians have I conversed with of different opinions, young and old. But it has never been my lot to meet with one who could affirm that he came to Christ of himself 
without being drawn. The universal confession of all true believers is this. I know that unless Jesus Christ had, this is not just died for me now, unless Jesus Christ had sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, I would to this very hour have been wandering far from him. He's quoting a song that we sing still at a distance from him and loving that distance well. With common consent, all believers affirm the truth that men will not come to Christ till the Father who hath sent Christ doth draw them. So Spurgeon is saying that, okay, well, in theological conversations, people argue and say that, no, people can come to Christ without the help of the Holy Spirit. But when you come down to talking to Christians, no Christian talks like that. No Christian talks like that. Every Christian who comes to Christ sounds like this. God found me. God opened my eyes. God raised me from the dead. God turned the lights on. God drew me to himself. No, no Christian says, well. God had influenced everyone. Perfectly. Evenly. No more influence in one's life than in another. And then made the offer to all. And that was it. And I'm among the few. Who had the wisdom. The intelligence. The smarts. The spirituality. The openness. To place my faith in him. That's absurd. No Christian talks like that. So we actually, and even recounting our conversion, confirm that before God did something, I was, I was not able to come to him. Here are some verses, John 6, 44. And, and what I want you to hear in these verses is, are these verses talking about what, what, what you will do, may or may not do, or what you can do? In other words, are they talking about ability or not? Every, every kid in school learned this when they were young and they raised their hand and said, teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And the teacher says, can you or may you? I'm sure you can go to the bathroom, right? In other words, as far as I know, right, you have the ability to go to the bathroom. You have all the necessary equipment to go to the bathroom. You can go to the bathroom. I think what you mean to say is, may you, will I allow you? So listen to these verses. These verses are talking about ability, what you can and cannot do. John six forty four. No one may, no one can come to me Unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Why doesn't it? Indeed, it can not unable. Those who are in the flesh can not please God. John 3, 5. Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Romans 6, 17 and 18. This is why he's giving thanks to God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. I've got to speed up. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespass passes and sins just highlighting parts of these verses that are pertinent Ephesians 4 verse 18 they are darkened in their understanding and it is due to the end of that verse their hardness of heart 1 Corinthians 2 14 the man without the spirit does not 
accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he can not understand them. So put these verses together. What are they saying? The illustration that I grew up with when it came to man's ability to place his faith in Christ is that there was a doctor, this was the evangelist, and he was offering medicine to sick people in the hospital. And so you're pleading with them, they're sick, but they are still able to reach out and take the medicine. You can't jam it down their throat, you can't force them to take it, but they're still able to reach out and take the medicine. And so you're pleading with them based on that remaining moral ability. But we are not sick in sin. Ephesians 2, 1. We are dead. So preachers, when you preach, when I preach, when we give the gospel, we're not preaching in hospitals. Where are we preaching? Cemeteries. There's a great illustration of that in Ezekiel 37. So think about this biblical picture of the state of sin. Man is said to be dead, enslaved, hardened, blind. So you see the picture. Blind people can't make themselves see. Uh, Enslaved people cannot free themselves. Dead people cannot make themselves alive. Total depravity means that you are dead in sin and there is nothing you can do about it apart from grace. There is nothing you can do about it apart from grace. That raises a question I know, and if we have time, I'll answer it in the conclusion. But first, one last point. C, total depravity affects the whole person so that every man is deserving of eternal punishment. Every man is deserving of eternal punishment. Punishment. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Ephesians 2.3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 and 9, God will... Inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Matthew twenty five forty six and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I need to wrap this up. Did I include the question on the outline? Is there anything underneath the question? I give you some quotes. Okay, so you can read those. But the question is, How can men be held responsible for something they are unable to do? That's the. That's when I hear when you hear you read the Bible and it says that man is not able apart from God's grace to place his faith in Christ. Then what happens inside me? I don't like that. That's that can't be right. That's not true. That's mean then that's not good if that's true then you can't hold me responsible you can't hold me responsible for something if I don't have the ability to do it that's not fair you can't hold me responsible it's a big question if people are not able to come to Christ apart from grace then how is God just in condemning those whom do not receive His grace and therefore do not come to Christ? Does that question make sense? Okay. So, in order to answer that question, and these quotes will help you and should get you moving in the right direction, we need to understand the difference between moral ability and natural ability. Let me give you a shorter quote than Jonathan Edwards 
And then I'll tell you what they're saying. This is from Michael Horton. Because you're unable in a way and you're not you're unable in a way, but you're not unable in another way. Here's what he says. Before the fall, humankind had the natural and moral ability to obey God with complete fidelity and freedom of will. After the fall, we still have the natural, but no longer the moral ability to do so. When it comes to our fallen condition, we all have the natural ability to think, will, feel, and do what we should. None of our faculties has been lost. We have all of the equipment necessary for loving God and our neighbors. Nevertheless, the fall has rendered us morally incapable of using these gifts in a way that could restore us to God's favor. I could choose to dedicate myself to becoming a marathon runner, but I cannot choose to dedicate myself to God apart from his grace. Here's what this is saying. Unbelievers, which you were at one point. Unbelievers don't come to Jesus because they don't want to come to Jesus. There will not be a man or woman in hell who wanted to come to Jesus. People are held accountable because what they do or don't do, they want to do or not do. We have freedom. It's another quote from John Calvin, I think. We have freedom from compulsion, but not from sin and misery. You see a couple more things. Because we're talking now about free will, aren't we? Is our will free or not? Are we able to choose or not? And I hope you hear what the Bible is teaching. Well, in one sense, your will is free. But in another sense, it's not. You're not a puppet. You're not a robot. God's not pulling the strings. He's not making you do bad things. He's not tempting you to do bad things. He's not forcing you to do bad things. He doesn't have to ever since the fall. You're free to make your choices. But ever since the fall, what you want to do is sin. And you and I are all, this is the bondage of our will, we're all enslaved to doing what we want to do. When was the last time you did something you didn't want to do? The answer is never. Never. You may say in one sense, I did something that I didn't want to do. But in the moment you actually did it, there was some overriding desire that caused you. To, right. In one sense, I, I really don't want to do that. I, I don't want I would say I don't want to punish my children. True story. I do not want to punish my children. I do not have a desire. Right. I don't go looking for it. I don't desire to do that. But then I do. I do. There are consequences. Why? Because in that moment, right, there's there's an overriding desire want. And that's I don't want them to grow up and go to prison. Right. So I'm going to do this thing that I may not just want to do or love. To, right. So we're always even if you do things you say you don't want to do, you want to do them. So that's the freedom of the will. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book about it. Augustine asserted this way back in the fourth century that that, that we have free will. We make choices, but. Ever since the fall, we've lost our liberty to not sin. It's just, it's just what we want to do. We want to live for me, not for God. Man is free. We have free will in that our will is never forced. It is never coerced. We don't do anything by compulsion, including not choose Christ, but voluntarily. Our wills are free in the sense that we do whatever we want to do, but our wills are in bondage also. Because of the fall, remember what we've looked at, the seat, the fountainhead of our inclinations has been corrupted so that what we want is sin. So our wills are enslaved, but they're not enslaved to God. 
our wills are enslaved to sin. So in that sense, I am morally unable to come to Christ because I do not want to come to Christ. And we'll look in weeks to come. But what happens through what we call irresistible grace is God, by His Holy Spirit, reaches out to those He has decided to save. He has taken their heart of stone and given them a heart of flesh. He has removed the blinders. He has caused them to be born again so that you want Christ. And you cry out in faith. That's the way this works according to God's word. So in conclusion, a summary, the condition of mankind is severe. God created man in a perfect state, but he did not stay that way for long. Because of Adam's sin, every human being has been born into a state of sin where who we are and everything we do is sinful. Without God's grace and intervention, we are unable to submit to him or reform ourselves. Therefore, because of what we do and who we are, we are totally deserving of eternal punishment. We could call this doctrine of total depravity the bad news. This is the bad news. But it is the bad news that everyone needs to know. J.C. Ryle said, A right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. We went a few minutes over. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for time to study your word this morning. And thank you for all the, the groundwork that has been done before us. Help us to uh, sit on the shoulders of godly men and women who have poured over your word and have thought deeply about your word. Help us ultimately by your Holy Spirit to understand the true meaning of these scriptures that we're looking at. God, help us today in the week to come before we go further up and further into your grace to accept the reality of who we are apart from you. To accept the truth of our sinfulness, our total helplessness when it comes to salvation. Help us, God, to grasp this, to believe this, so that we will be as grateful as we should be for your grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.